Good morning again. Come now to the preaching of God's Word. And so if you have your copy of the Scriptures, and I hope that you do, please open with me to Paul's letter to Titus. Titus, our series on the church, has brought us to the important office of elder. And Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, will be our text this morning. And so I hope that you've turned in your copy of God's Word there as we're going to read these verses from the Scriptures. Please follow along with me. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please grant us illumination from the Holy Spirit. We do not take it lightly whenever we come before you to open the scriptures and to consider what you have revealed to us in your word. Reading the Bible, Father, is not a merely natural task. We we understand the words and the sentences and we can put the sounds together, Father, but we need Holy Spirit illumination. We need supernatural insight from you so that we can know what it is that you have revealed and that we can believe it, obey it, conform our lives to it. Father, your word is the straight edge against which you measure and order your church. And so we would pray, God, that you would grant us the humility of heart to receive the scriptures this morning, which as they are implanted in our souls are able to save us and to bring us finally into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Lord, please keep me from error. Father, please build your church here at Fisherville by your spirit, through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you are a member of a young church in a very ungodly culture. Imagine you're a member of a young church in a very ungodly culture. Your church was recently planted through the pioneering work of Christian missionaries, and while the the church plant has taken root, there are still many difficulties. Imagine there are few other churches in your area, which means there's little encouragement from other congregations. And that's proving quite difficult for your church because the culture is so dark. In fact, the, the culture your church is in has a reputation for laziness and deceitfulness and blatant immorality. So do you have a picture of the situation? Young church, tough culture, not much encouragement. That's the situation I want you to imagine. What would you prioritize if you were tasked with strengthening that church? What would you do? 
clearly there would be many needs for that kind of congregation. Where would you start? What would you focus on? You might say evangelism. In a culture so dark, there's a great need for the gospel. So we will strengthen our church through bold gospel proclamation. That's not a bad idea. You also might say cultural transformation. If we can, if we can capture the organs of culture and the mechanisms of government, then our little church plant can reform the world and find a more stable footing for our congregation. Again, that, that's a strategy that you could do. What would you do? Young church, tough culture, not much encouragement. What would you prioritize? Better question, what would the Bible prioritize? What would the Bible say that we ought to do? Well, thankfully, friends, we don't have to guess. Our imagined scenario is the ministry of Titus on the island of Crete. At Paul's direction, Titus has taken up leadership in a young church in a dark culture, the church in Crete. And it has proven to be quite an assignment. Cretans had a less than stellar reputation in the ancient world. You can even hear it in that word Cretan, which we sometimes still use to malign people. And Cretans didn't even try to hide the fact that their culture was pretty dark. Look down at verse 12 in chapter 1 where Paul quotes a Cretan. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So, Crete was not your first century Bible belt. This is not the place that you go to have an easy ministry. This is a tough culture. And Titus has been given the task of strengthening this young church in a dark culture. And it's here that we find the Bible's answer to that question. Young church, tough culture, what would you do? Well, Paul tells Titus straight away, verse 5, appoint elders in every town. Actually, Paul's instructions are a bit broader than, than that. Paul says, put the church into good order by appointing elders in every town. In other words, the Bible's answer is to strengthen the church's leadership, to strengthen its polity, and to strengthen its structure. Appoint elders, Paul says. Do you find that surprising on some level? I think most Christians would that that would be the Bible's strategy. We tend to view things like elders and polity and church government as necessary pieces of a church's life, but pieces that are, that are not very exciting, that are not very strategic to the mission. Surely, something like properly functioning elders is not very high on a church's list of things that it ought to prioritize, right? Wrong, Paul says. Wrong. Far from being an afterthought, elders, and more broadly, church polity, church government, are essential for church faithfulness. We could even say it more strongly. I hope to be as clear as I can be in this sermon today. So we could even say this more strongly. Here's the first of what I hope is about 17 really clear statements. Part of God's plan for advancing the gospel around the globe is to build healthy churches through faithful pastors. Part of God's strategy for advancing the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth is to build healthy churches through the ministry of faithful pastors. And that means even in a place like Crete, 
where everyone is an evil beast and a lazy glutton. Even in a place like Crete, elders and church governance play an important role in the life and mission of a church. What would you prioritize? The Bible says you ought to prioritize how your church is led. So this morning, I want us to learn from the Apostle Paul's blueprint for how to build a strong and healthy church. While our church has been around for some time, we're not a a young church in terms of our history, approaching 200 years. While While we're not a young church in terms of history, there's still a lot that we can learn from the Apostle Paul's teaching. Specifically, you can think of this passage as something like the job description of an elder. Who is an elder and what should he do? That's what this paragraph is, is answering. This is like the job description of an elder. How should an elder think about his work of shepherding? That's what I want us to consider today from Titus chapter 1. If you'd like to take notes, we're going to look at three foundational tasks of an elder. Three foundational tasks of an elder. Before we get to those foundational tasks, let me offer a couple of general reminders when it comes to elders. These are the core convictions that give shape to the rest of the sermon. So I want to make sure that we're on the same page before we get too far into the details here. So core convictions on the ministry of elders. I've already mentioned the first conviction. Elders are pastors. That's the first conviction. Elders are pastors. The New Testament uses two different words to refer to the same office. Elder and overseer. Just look in our passage today. Verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, uh, Titus to appoint elders. And then in verse 7, he refers to those elders as overseers. It's the same office referred to by two different titles. Elder and overseer. And those interchangeable terms, elder and overseer, both refer to the work of pastoring. Just one example will suffice. 1 Peter chapter 5 which Bill read earlier in the service. That's why Bill read that text. 1 Peter chapter 5. What are elders supposed to do? Shepherd the flock of God. So elders are overseers. It refers to the same office. And that office is the work of a pastor. Elders are pastors. The second conviction that shapes this sermon is this. A church is best shepherded by a plurality of elders. I know that we've covered this before, but we're going to cover it again. A church is best shepherded by a plurality of elders who share the responsibility and the authority to pastor the congregation. Again, just look at our text. Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, plural, in each town, singular. You see it in verse 5? Elders, plural, in each town, singular. Individual congregations led by a plurality of pastors. That's just one example. If we were to expand it out to a passage like Acts chapter 20, when Paul calls for the elders, plural, of the Ephesian church, singular. So the New Testament pattern is pretty clear that a local church is best shepherded through a plurality of pastors. That model ensures continuity in the church's leadership. It protects the church from one domineering personality. And it's just simply wise. The the work of pastoring is far more than than what one man could do. 
So those are the core convictions that give shape to the rest of the sermon. I want you to hear those convictions through everything else that we say. Elders are pastors who shepherd the church through shared leadership. All right, with those, with those convictions refreshed, those are our presuppositions. With those convictions refreshed, let's consider Titus chapter 1. What are the foundational tasks of an elder? In this text, there are three. Three foundational tasks. The first comes in verse 5. Elders provide godly direction for the church. Elders provide godly direction for the church. The opening of the letter indicates that Titus's mission, in a sense, has only two objectives. Verse 5 gets right to it. Listen again, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So objective number one for Titus is to finish the organization of the church. The language in verse 5 is somewhat rare for the New Testament, but the point is clear enough. The church in Crete needs structure, and that structure should fit the apostolic pattern. Did you notice that Paul tells Titus to appoint elders as I directed you. In other words, how the church was structured mattered to Paul. How the church is structured matters within the New Testament. That's not to say that your church's structure is a first-tier issue. That's pressing things too far. But still, the way your church is organized is not an indifferent concern in the New Testament. Church polity is not an indifferent matter to a local congregation. Titus's first job is to finish putting the church into order. That's objective number one. The second objective is not in our paragraph, but it's in the next one. Look down at verse 10. Paul mentions people who are troubling the church, insubordinate, deceitful, empty talkers. Part of Titus's mission is to resist those people. Look at verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. So that's objective number two. Titus needs to preserve the church from error and from ungodliness. Objective number one, finish ordering the church. Objective number two, protect the church from error. Now here's the key connection. Those two objectives go together. How will Titus preserve the church from error? Answer by setting it into good order. That's how he preserves the church from error. Proper church order is a means of preservation against error. Church polity is part of God's provision to direct and to lead and to guide his church. How does that work, we ask? How does putting things in good order lead to the preservation from error? Well, the answer is also in verse 5. Good order comes through the appointment of pastors. Elders, in other words, are the bridge between objective number one and objective number two. Through the ministry of elders, God directs his church so that each congregation is properly governed and preserved from elder. How is God keeping watch over his church so that things are structured well and we are preserved from error? How is God doing that? Through the ministry of qualified elders. We're going to come back to the preservation from error in the final point. For, 
for now, I want us to think about the connection between elders and order. Elders and order. Verse 5 indicates that elders provide the needed, the needed order within a church. Set things in order and appoint elders. So the order comes through the ministry of the elders. The implication then is that the elders have some level of authority in the governance and direction of a church. Verse 5 does not make sense if the elders lack the authority to direct and guide a congregation. So the implication of verse 5 is is relatively clear, I would say. That elders or pastors are entrusted with the authority to lead and direct the church. Now, this is where the conversation about elders often goes off the rails. There are many different perspectives on what it means for elders to exercise authority in a church. In some churches... Elders have very wide-ranging freedom to enact decisions with minimal input from the congregation. We would call that model elder rule. That's not the model that we follow here at Fisherville. Instead, we seek to practice elder-led congregational life. In this model, the elders are entrusted with authority to direct the life of the church, but that leadership is always exercised in concert with the congregation. So the pastor's authority is not unilateral, but cooperative. Do you see the difference between elder rule and elder led? A pastor that I really respect uses a helpful analogy. He says, imagine that your church is like a car. Last, two weeks ago, it was churches as kidneys or something, and now it's a church as a car. Imagine your church as a car. The elders within the life of a church are like the steering wheel of the car. The elders set the direction for which way the church is going to go. And if there's a turn that needs to happen in the life of the church, then the elders are, are expected to initiate and to lead that turn. If the church is a car, then the elders are a steering wheel. What's the congregation? A congregation is like a good set of brakes. At any point in the church's life, the congregation can step on the brakes and say, we we don't believe that's the direction we ought to go. Let's rethink this, brothers. Let's rethink this direction. I like that analogy because it does justice to the makeup of the entire church. Do the elders have authority to lead? Yes, clearly, from verse 5. Are the elders responsible to set the direction? Yes, But does the congregation have a role in that direction? Yes, absolutely. The elders lead and the congregation affirms. The elders steer and direct and guide and the congregation can, with its collective wisdom, step on the brakes if needed. The elders lead and direct. The congregation approves and follows. I hope that imagery provides a bit of clarity on how it just works practically within a church. I want you to hear me on this. Instituting elders in a church is not about consolidating authority. It's actually the opposite. It's about sharing authority responsibly among qualified pastors that is then affirmed by the membership of the church. That's what instituting elders is about. A plurality of elders ensures that authority is not concentrated, but shared. And that shared authority is then affirmed by the members of the church. Friends, that's the first 
essential, foundational, ground floor task of an elder. At God's direction, elders provide leadership. They direct a congregation. That's task number one. Let's move to the second foundational task of an elder from verses six and eight, six to eight. Task number two, elders model godly character to the church. Elders model godly character to the church. In verse five, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders. And then in verses six to eight, Paul gives Titus the criteria to identify those men from within the church. And the criteria is that only qualified men should assume the office of elder. The qualifications are listed in verses 6 to 8. So we're going we're gonna to camp out on these qualifications for quite a few minutes here. This is always a good exercise to think about the qualifications for pastoring. It's good for the men who are currently serving as elders to hear again the standards for their leadership. It's also good for any man who might aspire to the office of elder. This is what you ought to aim for in these verses, 6 to 8. So we're going we're to dwell on these qualifications for a few minutes. And because it helps me to think in an organized way, we can think about these qualifications on three levels. There's three levels of qualification. Level one, or what we might call the ground floor, level one is that elders must display consistent Christian character. Paul repeats the most basic qualification twice, verses 6 and 7, an elder must be above reproach. That's the most basic qualification, above reproach. What does that mean? This is really instructive. I hope you'll follow me on this. Sometimes people assume that above reproach means extraordinary Christian character. Extraordinary. That is, elders must display a a kind of super spirituality that rises above everyday Christianity. And I understand the impulse behind that mindset. Eldership is a high office that should not be taken lightly. So I understand the impulse to say that above reproach means extraordinary Christian character. But here's the problem with that view, friends. This same qualification, above reproach, is used for all Christians in other parts of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, Paul prays for believers to be sustained blameless, same word, until the day of Christ. Or Colossians chapter 1, that's printed on the front of your bulletin. Colossians chapter 1, why did Jesus Christ die? So that he would present us to God blameless and above reproach before him. Again, same word. So the idea of above above reproach is not extraordinary Christian character. It's not another plane of spiritual existence that most believers will never reach. Rather, above reproach is consistent Christian character. Not extraordinary, consistent. Elders must live consistently visible lives of godliness. An elder's life should leave no room for someone to step back and say, does that man really love God? Does he love his neighbor as himself? Does he believe that God's word is true? And does he live like it? It's not extraordinary character. 
It's consistently revealed Christian character that leaves no room for application. That's level one. That's the ground floor of being called to eldership. Consistent Christian character that's above reproach. Level two goes one step higher. That consistent Christian character has to be displayed in the man's home. Has to be displayed in his home. Verse 6 is all about a man's leadership in his home. And the logic here is very clear. If a man cannot shepherd his home, then there is little reason to think that he will be able to shepherd the church. Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, used to tell his students, Brothers, if you can't shepherd your home, don't expand the confusion. (laughs) It's good counsel. The home, remember, is the first mission field. The home is the first mission field. And listen, that's true for every father, every parent in this room. That's why it was so fitting that Chris prayed for our parents today. The ministry within the home is not unique to elders. Every Christian parent is called to that ministry. And it's the first ministry. Your first ministry, brothers and sisters, is within your own home. If God has entrusted children to you, then that is your first mission field. And if you're thinking to yourself, I, I, I need to grow in that, two responses. One, welcome to the club. And two, let's get together and work on it together and grow together. There are numerous parents in the room who would be looking for those kinds of encouraging and discipling relationships so that we can all be raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The home is the first mission field. It's the priority for every Christian who has been entrusted with children. And and elders ought to model that priority. Look look at the details in verse 6. Paul says an elder must be the husband of one wife. The point is that he must be faithful to his wife. He must be faithful to his wife, and that faithfulness needs to be his well-established reputation. He also needs to be faithful in his parenting of his children. Look at the next phrase. His children are believers. This phrase needs some careful thinking. There are two options for interpreting this phrase. The first option is clear in the way that the ESV translates it, that the man's children must be believers. In this view, in order for a man to be qualified for the office of elder, if he has children, those children must be Christians. That's one possible interpretation. That's how the ESV translates it. But the phrase in verse 6 could also be translated as his children are faithful. You may have a footnote for that translation as well. You could also say that the translation is his children are faithful, with the point being that his children, while in his home, display the fruit of his parenting, that they don't live reckless lives, that they are faithful. I will contend that that's the right interpretation of verse 6. An elder's faithfulness as a father should be visible in the parenting of his children. So I don't think Paul is requiring a man's children to be Christians, but I do think he is requiring the man to be faithful and consistent in the parenting of his children. And so I hold that view for a couple of reasons. I just want to unpack this because sometimes th- this, this debate can get rather heated. So I want to tell you my reasons for why I hold that view. Theologically, it's problematic to say that a man is responsible for the salvation of his children, ultimately. By all means, a father is responsible to teach his children the gospel. Brothers, if you're not leading your children to hear the good news, please do that. 
A father is responsible to teach his children the gospel. But salvation belongs to the Lord, amen? And even the most faithful father cannot guarantee the salvation of his children. So it's problematic to say that verse 6 requires an elder's children to be Christians. Contextually, it's also problematic to require that verse 6 mean his children are Christians. If you compare Titus 1 with the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, there's some important overlap. Paul gives a list for elders in 1 Timothy 3, and it's, it's largely the same as the passage in Titus chapter 1. And in 1 Timothy 3, the requirement is that the man's children are submissive to him. That's how it is in 1 Timothy 3. His children must be submissive to him. So, Timothy helps us interpret Titus. The point is not that the man's children must be Christians. Rather, they must live in a way that demonstrates they are submitted to his authority as their father. They must live under control. And that interpretation is confirmed by the rest of verse 6. Notice the rest of the verse. His children are faithful, that's how I would translate it, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. What's the focus there? How the children live, how they respond to their father's authority. They must not live lives of reckless rebellion against the authority of their home. Instead, they ought to display the faithfulness that is submissive to their, to their father. That's how I take verse 6. And the logic, again, is, is the key. If a man can't shepherd his children, then it's unlikely he will shepherd the church because the home is the first mission field. That's level two of the qualification. Level one, consistent Christian character. Level two, consistent Christian character in your home. Now level three, consistent Christian character in your relationship to others. Look at verses seven and eight. Verse seven, Paul tells us the vices that an elder must avoid. And verse eight, the virtues that he must pursue. And both of these relate primarily to other people. Listen again, starting in verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, some people have noticed that the bar in verse 7, the proverbial bar in verse 7, is rather low. No Christian should be doing the things in verse 7. Drunkard, violent, greedy. No one should be doing that. And so some people have said that that seems like the bar is rather low for leadership. But that comment misses the point, friends. The point of verse 7 is that an elder ought to be out front in setting the example for consistent Christian character. (laughs) If verse 7 is basic... If no Christian should do the things listed in verse 7, then an elder ought to be the prime example of that basic, foundational, consistent godliness. That's the point in verse 7. Verse 8 then gives the positive side. The things that he must cultivate. Again, they're applied to all Christians in other parts of the New Testament. We we don't have the time to go through every virtue in detail. I just want to highlight one of the virtues. Self-controlled. Verse 8, one of the virtues required of an elder is self-control. The idea is to not be mastered by his impulses or his desires. Rather, an elder must be able to control himself. 
He shouldn't be rash or hot-headed or quick-tempered. He needs to be able to lead effectively by controlling his emotions, his responses, his words. In 1 Timothy, it's called sober-mindedness. Here in Titus, it's called self-control. Not rash, not impulsive, measured, disciplined in his thinking and in his actions. Again, it's foundational Christianity expected of all believers of which elders set the example, self-control. So let's, let's sum up the qualifications. They work on three levels. Ground floor, above reproach. Consistent Christian character that leaves no room for accusations. One level up, consistent character in your home. Faithfulness to your spouse if you're married. Faithfulness in parenting your children if God has given them to you. Next level up, character in relationship to others. Not being mastered by the things of this world or by the desires of the flesh, but being self-controlled for the purpose of caring for other people. Those are the levels of qualification. If a man displays those qualifications, then he is able to consider the office of pastor within the church. By all means, a church ought to apply these qualifications when considering a man for eldership. That's, that's the first step of application. We ought to apply these criteria when considering a brother to serve as an elder. We're in the midst of interviewing potential elders at Fisherville right now. That, that's ongoing. And we utilize these texts. We talk about these qualifications. So that, that's one level of application that I want you to take away today. This passage is the biblical framework through which we answer the question, who is God raising up from our church to be an elder? This text helps us answer that passage. At the same time, at the same time, I, I, I don't in any way intend to minimize that application. But at the same time, I do want to emphasize that these qualifications are excellent descriptions of how every Christian ought to live. Excellent summaries of foundational, godly character. These qualifications are what we aim to cultivate in our lives, whether or not we ever serve as an elder. Brothers and sisters, are you, are you pursuing those kinds of things? This is just a moment of self-reflection for each of us. Holy, upright, disciplined, godly. Not violent, not greedy, not dishonest, not a drunkard. This isn't super plain spirituality. It's just Christianity. Are we pursuing those things in our own hearts, in our own lives? It's a moment of reflection. By all means, we apply it to the men who we consider for eldership. But brothers and sisters, we also ought to apply it just in our own lives. A great way to apply this text is to pick one of those virtues from verse 8 and say, I'm going to give the fourth quarter of this year to prayerfully asking God to help me cultivate that virtue. Find another church member and tell them, That's, this is the virtue that I've picked. You pray for me, I'll pray for you. Memorize passages on it. Pray for it regularly. Ask your spouse or your friend to pray with you. It's a good application of this text. This is not simply how we structure the church. It is that. But it's also how we structure our own hearts. Holy, disciplined, upright, self-controlled, godly lives. Let's be that kind of church that's full of those kinds of believers to the glory of God. That's level two. Task number two. I'm getting all my numbering off. Let's conclude with the third task 
an elder must perform. From verse 9. Task number three. Elders uphold God's truth within the church. Elders uphold God's truth within the church. If this kind of character is expected of all Christians, and it is, then what is it that sets an elder apart from other Christians? What is it that makes the elder's office unique? Well, the answer comes in verse 9. Elders must uphold the truth of God's word. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Friends, this is the unique work of, a, of an elder, something that sets elders apart from deacons, as we're going to think about next week. Elders must be able to teach sound doctrine, instructing Christians in the truth and correcting those who are swerving into error. Must be able to teach. Now, that does not mean that every elder must preach sermons in the gathering of the church. Even within the body of elders, there's going to be different kinds of teaching gifts. So verse 9 is not saying that every elder has to preach regularly in the church body. But verse 9 is saying that every elder must be able to instruct believers in the faith. An elder must be able to understand doctrine, uphold that doctrine, and explain that doctrine, and defend that doctrine. That's the ministry of the word. That's the unique function of the office of elder. Paul captures that ministry in two words in verse 9. Instructing and rebuking. The ministry of the word, instructing and rebuking. To uphold the truth of the scripture requires the elders to teach and to oversee the people who teach. And if there's any error that begins to spread within the church, the elders are responsible to correct it. Again, this is foundational pastoring. It's the ministry of the word through instruction and correction. Along with that foundational work, there are a couple of other points from verse 9 that I want to draw out for us. I know that there's been a lot of information that we've covered, and if your mind has wandered for a minute, this is the road sign saying, come back, I want you to hear this next part. Okay, I want you to follow me on this. I praise God that as a church we value sound doctrine. Amen. I praise God for that. I pray that that conviction only ever gets deeper. That being said, verse 9 reminds us of the proper mindset that we ought to have when it comes to doctrine. So this certainly applies to elders, but it also applies to the whole church. There are two emphases in verse 9 that keep our love for doctrine running in the right lane, okay? Two emphases here. The first is that upholding sound doctrine is an act of humility. Upholding sound doctrine is ultimately an act of humility. Notice where Paul says that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Do you see that? As taught. So think of a trust. Think of a trust, a valuable deposit that you don't own but you are responsible to protect. That's what sound doctrine is, friends. It's a trust of truth. And therefore, elders uphold sound doctrine as an act of humility. We did not create this sound doctrine. We did not come up with this truth. 
we received the truth. Do you see? We were taught the truth. And therefore, we are responsible to uphold it and to preserve it and to guard it so that the next generation receives the trust unblemished. So, in that sense, every elder ought to view his role with some level of trembling before God. I did not make this truth. This truth made me, and I'm responsible to uphold it. An elder's role is simply to be one link in the chain of faithfulness so that the truth of the gospel moves from one generation to the next generation, and the next generation hears the same gospel that you and I heard. Just one link in the chain. We were taught the faith, and now we're responsible to teach that faith so that the trust continues. And I can barely teach this point without thinking of all of those precious people decades ago who taught my Sunday school classes, or my parents and grandparents who took me to church, or other family members who helped me receive the faith. That's a trust. An act of humility to uphold that sound doctrine. This is a humble role. It's a humble role. Please hear me on this. We have, we have got this massively confused within evangelicalism. To be entrusted with teaching in the church is not the same thing as having a platform or garnering a following. If you desire the pastorate because you desire to have a following, then you are not called to ministry. Teaching in the church is not a means of advancement. It is a stewardship of a trust. I received faithful teaching and now I'm responsible to provide faithful teaching so that the next generation gets the word of God just like I got the word of God. Do you see why I say humility is essential to loving sound doctrine? The point of doctrine is not to puff yourself up. The point of doctrine is not so that we can so we can boast about how our church is better than the church down the road, that we don't do the silly things that other churches do. The point of doctrine is not about establishing your reputation as someone who contends for the truth. That's not not the point. The point of sound sound doctrine is the perpetuation of the faith. And embracing that calling is humble. Embracing that calling requires the humility to recognize that you're going to live, you're going to teach the gospel, you're going to die, and in two generations, nobody's going to remember you. But if you helped get the gospel from one to the next, well done, good and faithful servant. Loving sound doctrine is an act of humility. The second emphasis that ought to get our attention, upholding sound doctrine is for the purpose of growth. 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 The adjective sound in verse 9 also has the sense of health as in a physical body. So sound and healthy are synonyms there. And I actually like the language of healthy better. Elders are responsible for upholding healthy doctrine within the, the body of Christ. What's the purpose of teaching that doctrine? So that the body grows. Health. Healthy doctrine nourishes the church. And this becomes the litmus test then for how we determine what's happening in our church. Is our emphasis on sound doctrine leading to health? As our knowledge of the truth deepens, so should our lives display a proportionate depth of godliness and love for one another. 
The point of doctrine is to help people grow. So our ministry of the word is not for the purpose of ensuring that our church can pass a theology exam. Upholding sound doctrine is for the purpose of spiritual health and growth. Healthy doctrine ought to produce spiritually healthy churches. And that means our metric for measuring whether or not we're successful. How's your church doing? I get asked that question all the time. How's your church doing? Our metric for answering that question is emphatically not numbers. It's not mere knowledge. It's godliness. It's growth in love for one another. It's servant-hearted humility. It's gospel clarity that says, this is what the Bible teaches. That's our metric. That kind of fruit tells us whether or not our elders and our pastors are following verse 9. Not simply how much we know. The devil knows a lot of doctrine, but he doesn't love anybody. It's not how much we know, but how healthy our lives are becoming through the doctrine that we know. That's what elders are called to do. They uphold the truth of God so that the whole body gets healthy together. As we close, there's just one more phrase that I want to draw your attention to. One more phrase that sums up the work of an elder. We've considered the foundational tasks, providing godly direction, modeling godly character, upholding God's truth. One more phrase. I love this part. Don't you love the Bible? I love this part in verse 7. Look at verse 7 and notice how Paul describes an overseer, an elder. What is an elder? He's God's steward. That's such a wonderful image. A steward is a household manager. He's someone who responsible, who's responsible for the upkeep and the maintenance and the protection of someone else's possessions. Not his own, someone else's. Friends, at the end of the day, that's all that an elder is. He's only a steward in the household of God. He's only a steward. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He reigns over his church through his word. He upholds his church by his word. The church belongs to Jesus. Do the elders have authority to lead Christ's church? Absolutely. Are elders responsible to lead and guide and direct? Absolutely. But in all of those things, what is an elder? Only a steward in the household of God. Only a steward. And so the appropriate way to close is by praying that God would please continue to bless our church with the leadership that we need and that that leadership would always be marked by what Paul teaches in this text, godliness, faithfulness, commitment, and above all, and I do mean above all, humility. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. We, we cannot we cannot fulfill these kinds of responsibilities on our own. We are weak and frail. We are not nearly as strong as we think ourselves to be. We are not nearly as wise. We are not nearly as clever. We are not nearly as diligent. Father, we plead, we plead that you would please continue to provide our church with the leadership and the shepherding that we need. Father, we want to see your name exalted. We want to see your gospel go forth to the ends of the earth. We want to see all of these precious children that you have entrusted to these families growing up in Christ and holding firm. Father, we want to play our part in seeing the gospel get from one generation to the next. 
But we can't do this on our own. We plead for the work of the Holy Spirit. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. We don't want to labor in vain, God. Bless our attempts and our striving and our effort to structure and lead our church according to the biblical pattern. We do that, Father, as an expression of humility. Bless it, please. Bless it for the sake of Christ and for the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.